Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. As we are resuming our study of this gospel, the book of Mark, we're going to be starting chapter 10 today, looking at verses 1 through 12. There we go. So you'll recall that as we've been looking at Mark here, we have been considering this theme of discipleship in the book of Mark, and Mark has been touching on different aspects of discipleship. So going back several sermons, you might remember a sermon on self-denial, taking up your cross. Uh, There was some emphasis on prayer as part of discipleship. Um, There was emphasis on humility, the need to adopt this posture of humility. Last week, we looked at the responsibility to deal ruthlessly with our personal sin, and you might recall it was an exhortation to deal with our sin, not necessarily dealing with other people's sin, which tends to be our temptation. Um, And now we get to chapter 10, and this issue of discipleship continues, and Mark is now drawing our attention to marriage as a part of discipleship. I don't know if you've ever considered marriage as part of discipleship, but that is what Mark has in mind as he begins to describe to us the way Jesus himself addressed this issue of marriage. And so, um, marriage actually was a controversial issue in Jesus' day. That shouldn't surprise you because marriage is a controversial issue in our day. Um, My slides are not advancing here, Dan, for some reason. So, 2,000 years later, after this book was written, we find ourselves still dealing with the issue of marriage uh, as a hot topic of discussion. And I think we can safely say that the institution of marriage has been uh, under attack in our society for quite a while. I, I learned recently the divorce rate in the year 1910 was 10%. And so here we are a hundred years later with divorce rates as high as 50%. We could point to a lot of different reasons for this. Um, No-fault divorce laws uh, began to be passed. Actually, the first one was passed in 1969 in the state of California by Governor Ronald Reagan. might surprise you to learn, Ronald Reagan, known as a good conservative, but he was the first one to pass no-fault divorce laws Reagan later said it was one of the biggest mistakes of his political career, but that was back in 1969, and so it resulted in an increase in divorces. And a number of other elements, 2015, we have the Supreme Court in the Obergefell decision legalizing gay marriage, and so the definition of marriage begins to get reinvented and changed. And so now today, the latest issue when it comes to marriage is that there is just simply um, a lack of interest in marriage that people, young people in particular, uh, are not desiring or aspiring to be married. In fact, in 2018, marriage rates in the United States reached an all-time low. 
And so I've got a chart up here, but my slides are not advancing. So <laughs> am I, I going to have to look to you, Dan, to move me through my slides? Okay. I don't know if we've got a battery problem here or what. I don't know. Um, so here's a chart, and uh, <clears throat> you don't need to really see all of the, the numbers there just to get the point, right? You see the downward trend there. The chart is moving from 1900 on the left to 2020 on the right, and that is showing us how divorce rates have plummeted, excuse me, marriage rates have plummeted uh, over the course of a little more than a hundred years. Um, Rutgers University did a study a little while ago on these declining marriage rates and found as they interviewed younger people that young people see marriage as too risky. They see it as um, an occasion where they're going to lose some self-autonomy and they're simply not interested. What they would prefer, according to the study, is sex without strings and relationships without rings. Just a low commitment culture that is leading to a devaluing of marriage. So should we be concerned about this, that less people are getting married or that the institution of marriage is being devalued? And I would suggest yes, we should be concerned. Uh, marriage is a gift of God's, as we're going to see here from the text, and it is actually an essential component of a healthy society. It's one of the main building blocks of human civilization. If marriage continues to be devalued, the consequences are certain to be catastrophic. And so there's a guy named uh, uh, Andre Kostenberger who's written a really good book, God, Marriage, and Family, which I highly recommend to you. And he opens the book by saying this, it can be rightly said that marriage and the family are institutions under siege in our world today, and that with marriage and the family, our very civilization is in crisis. Well, <clears throat> the Scriptures are always relevant, friends, aren't they? We look to the Bible and we see that this passage written 2,000 years ago is addressing an issue that's very real for us today. And so, let us read Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12, and we'll see what this passage has to say to us about the institution of marriage. You can Stand, if you're able, and I'll read these 12 verses to us. Forgot my water. Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. <clears throat> and Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes, soften our hearts, and let us behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So from this text, I want to point out three things that we can gain about marriage, how God has intended it. And the first thing is simply this, that marriage is divine in origin. Marriage is divine in origin. We're thinking about how marriage started, where it came from. So how is it that Jesus gets to this topic? Well, we see in verse 1 that Jesus left there where he was speaking about dealing ruthlessly with sin, and he went into the region of Judea. So you remember I've been telling you that Jesus is beginning to make his way south from Galilee toward Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And so this journey toward Jerusalem where the cross awaits him is beginning here. So he's in Judea. Now crowds are gathering, and as Jesus was constantly doing, he's teaching them and instructing them. And Pharisees show up, and whenever the Pharisees show up, you know there's an argument about to ensue. And so the Pharisees come, according to verse 2, and they come in order to test him. It's very interesting that the last time we saw this word for test being used actually was when Satan came to Jesus to test or tempt Jesus in the wilderness. So we get a hint here that the Pharisees are up to no good. They're not just inquiring for information. They're looking to set a trap for Jesus to trip him up. And their question here has to do with the issue of marriage and divorce. And so in verse 3, excuse me, in verse 2, they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the Pharisees' question to Jesus. Well, Jesus, very often, he likes to turn the tables, and uh, they're testing him, and so now he's going to test them. And so he gives a question back to them in verse 3, and he says to these Jewish Pharisees who would know the Old Testament very well, and he asks them, what did Moses command you? And their answer, verse 4, is, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So what, what is going on here? What are the Pharisees referring to? And it's pretty clear that they are referring to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 24. And so I want to read this passage to you, these four verses from Deuteronomy 24. You might keep that uh, word certificate in mind, what the Pharisees said. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce, and so here's what it says in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, 
then her former husband, who sent her away in the first place, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So, I mean, we could take a long time unpacking all the details of this text, which we're not going to do, but the basic point here is that this is a passage that is seeking to uphold the rights and dignity of a woman who is in a divorce situation. The certificate is given to the woman so that she has proof that the divorce has occurred, that her husband has divorced her. That would give her the right then to be remarried. And it validates the divorce that has taken place. But the passage goes on to say that if the second husband, if this woman who was divorced marries again, the second husband then divorces her also. You have a woman in a very unfortunate situation here. As you know, it's a very patriarchal society. Women had very much fewer rights then than they do now. What the passage is saying is the first husband can't come back and then take her and be married to her again. Now, there would be certain incentives and reasons why men would perhaps want to marry a woman if there was certain inheritance possibilities involved or a dowry that would come to them through her. And so really the purpose of this passage in Deuteronomy is to protect this woman from being exploited by men. That's what Moses has in in mind. He doesn't want this woman to be tossed back and forth like a football between men who had all the power, and so this passage is written to protect these women. But the thing to notice here about Deuteronomy chapter 24 is that this is all occurring after the divorce has taken place in the case of this woman, not before. In other words, Deuteronomy 24 is not teaching about the grounds for divorce. It is teaching something about what to do after a divorce. The Pharisees here, they're setting a trap for Jesus. What the Pharisees are really after here is just to find the easiest, most convenient reason why a man can get divorced for any reason at all. That's what they're after. They want to join in with this exploitation of women and get out of marriage for whatever reason they could. There are Jewish writings that would have said that a man could divorce a woman if she didn't even cook dinner right. And so the Scriptures in the Old Testament, again, written to protect women, these Pharisees here looking for an easy way out, but they're mishandling this text in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 is written as an exception as a concession. So you see how Jesus goes on and says in verse 5 that it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote this commandment. It was because of a dysfunctional situation here that Moses um, wrote that a certificate of divorce could be uh, given. So the Pharisees are making the error of taking something that is an exception and trying to use that as if it's the rule. So, you know, an example might be, if you can imagine, an airline pilot. I'm sure there are certain directions that that pilot would need to keep in mind if the plane was going down. You know, during a crash landing, there are certain rules to follow, but you don't look for the rules of a crash landing to give you direction for how you fly a plane properly. 
But that's what the Pharisees are kind of doing, looking to this unusual situation to try to find uh, a right and permission for divorce. So what does Jesus do? In response to this, he goes back to the creation order. That's why this point is that marriage is divine in origin. The, the way Jesus deals with this question from the Pharisees is he goes back to Genesis. He goes back to chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis and begins to quote from that book. So he says uh, in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. And then he goes on to quote from Genesis, which we'll get to in just a moment. But what Jesus is doing here is a, a kind of a uh, an, an instructional bit here about how to interpret Scripture. That is, we always allow Scripture to interpret other Scriptures. And here the Pharisees are looking at this Deuteronomy 24 passage in isolation, but what Jesus is doing is let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the transcultural creation order and find out how God intended, intended marriage to work to begin with. And so he goes back to the beginning and starts to make this point about marriage. And so what Jesus seems to be doing here is saying that there was an ideal, an intention that God set up for marriage that is given to us in Genesis. That is that marriage is God's gift to humanity. It is intended for our flourishing. It is one of the main building blocks of civilization, as I mentioned, that marriage is not actually primarily something to be driven by a desire for happiness and romance and the fulfillment of our dreams, but that it is something that we enter into for the good of society and for the blessing of the entire human race. I mean, the logic is really pretty simple when you think about it makes us question how it is that marriage can be so undermined as it is, but we might just reason like this. Man and a woman have sex, babies are produced, societies need babies in order to be perpetuated and to flourish, and mothers and fathers provide the environment for babies to mature and flourish well. So the institution of the family is essential for the flourishing of society. I think we've lost sight of this because as Americans, again, we tend to view marriage as such an individualistic opportunity to fulfill our desires and longings, but it's much bigger than that. This is how God set up the entire human project by giving us marriage in the early chapters of Genesis. Statistics are very clear, and you can look them up and find a number of studies that indicate the benefits of marriage. Men and women who are married tend to have lower mortality rates. They tend to have higher income. They tend to be less likely incarcerated, particularly for men. Children born to married families, children brought up in a household with a mother and a father, similarly, they tend to have higher grades in school, they tend to uh, endure less poverty, they have less likelihood of being addicted to alcohol and drugs. I mean, if we're interested in a productive, less dysfunctional society, promoting healthy families is the best way forward, and the heritage Foundation 
said this very well, marriage remains America's strongest anti-poverty, anti-crime, pro-health institution. The best chances for financial success, emotional well-being, and good health for both parents and children happen when parents are married and families are intact. Now you might say, well, what does that mean if I'm single? Does that mean that I can't flourish and I can't be happy? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> single people can flourish and find fulfillment in this life. Of course, we know that Jesus and Paul both were single. And so, I don't mean any of this to discredit the life of single people, but based on this text, it's pretty clear that marriage has a chief primary role in God's design for humanity. So that's the first thing that I want to show you. Marriage is divine in origin, a gift from God. But the second thing to consider from this text is this, that marriage is heterosexual in nature. It's very often said that Jesus did not address certain sexual issues or didn't address the issue of of homosexuality, and certainly it's true that the word homosexuality doesn't appear in this text, but nonetheless, the issue is addressed because of Jesus' explicit affirmation of marriage as being heterosexual. So look what he says here in verse 6. Jesus quoting here from Genesis 1, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, two genders, equal in value, different in function. Sometimes you'll hear about uh, gender assignment or your assigned gender, and sometimes when that phrase is used, the implication is that the doctor welcoming the baby into the world just arbitrarily came up with a gender to assign to the baby, as if it just sprang from his or her imagination. Um, no. Gender is assigned, but it's assigned to us by God and something to be received and, and submitted to. Jesus goes on, verse 7, quoting from Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So we have here two genders, man and woman, and they're coming together. The word hetero, when we consider that word heterosexual, hetero just means different. So here we have two different genders. The man is masculine, the woman is feminine. I know that this is simple, but it needs to be said in the culture in, in which we live. Actually, we have another affirmation of the heterosexual nature of marriage when verse 7 says that the man will leave his father and mother. The father is the masculine gender. The mother is the feminine gender hetero. They're different. Marriage is two different genders coming together to be one. Verse 9, they shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. The whole idea here is you've got two things that are different in some respect that are coming together to form a, another thing. It's like if you had red blending with red, you wouldn't really take note that the blending of the two creates red. It's red and another color coming together to create something different. That's kind of the idea here. It presupposes the difference between the genders. The heterosexual nature 
of marriage. Now, here in the PCA, in our denomination, we have not reached the point where we are affirming gay marriage, and I don't think that that will happen anytime soon. So in our denomination, this is not something we practice. Many other church denominations do practice gay marriage or officiate, affirm gay marriage. Our denomination doesn't. This church doesn't. But of course, we know in American culture, broadly speaking, it's widely affirmed and even the law of the land. And I know I talk about this a lot, and maybe you're sick of me addressing the topic but it is here in the text, and I just believe that cultural pressures are so strong, and there is such a powerful normalization of homosexual marriage that the temptation to conform to what the world is saying is very strong. And you will be tempted, if you haven't already, to begin to adjust your views and to question what the Bible really says about this issue and to go to a text like this and to try to take it apart in a certain way to make sense of the push for homosexual marriage. And as your shepherd and your pastor, I feel responsible to warn you about that. And so here, here it is. I mean, what, what can we do? I mean, there's a lot of things we can do. I mean, I think one thing we can do in response to this is just refuse to call gay marriage marriage because it's not marriage. A man can't be married to a man any more than a triangle can have four sides. We're talking about God's definition of marriage. God defines marriage. We don't. The Supreme Court doesn't define marriage. God does. And this is what God is saying that it is. The very nature of it is heterosexual. I'm going to quote Kostenberger here again from that book, God, sex, and marriage. Scripture with one voice affirms that homosexuality is a sin and a moral offense to God. The contemporary church corporately and biblical Christians individually must bear witness to the unanimous testimony of Scripture unequivocally and fearlessly. Now, I'm not saying this because I think that heterosexual people are better than homosexual people. Nobody goes to heaven by being heterosexual. Only the blood of Jesus saves anybody, and heterosexuals and homosexuals both need the gospel, need the blood of Jesus. It's the only way for us to be saved. I don't say this out of any contempt or any kind of self-righteousness. I'm saying this because the Scriptures are clear, and there's a responsibility for us as the church to affirm what God says about the heterosexual nature of marriage. You hear very often stories in the culture about those who have come out. You know, they've decided, well, I was heterosexual and now I'm, I'm homosexual. And they come out and it's generally affirmed as an act of courage and it's celebrated and even heard stories of wives whose husbands have decided that they're homosexual and have left the marriage and the wife has applauded him for that because he's being true to himself. Well, what we often don't hear about is how it goes the other way. Do you know there are people who have been in the homosexual lifestyle who have repented and turned and gone back to a heterosexual lifestyle? That, that, that has happened. There's a book here by a guy named Beckett Cook, um, A Change of Affection. That was exactly his experience. 
He was fully committed to the homosexual lifestyle, was in a restaurant, heard some people talking about the Bible, began to talk to them, asked them what they thought. They were honest, gave a biblical position, and in the grace of God and by His Spirit, he became convinced he ought to go to church, and so he went to church and uh, became a Christian, and, and everything changed for him. Another example of this is from a guy named Doug Mainwaring, very similar situation. He was married to his wife, decided he was homosexual, left his wife, and lived as a homosexual for 10 years or so, and then became a Christian and repented and went back and remarried his wife and continued to raise his children and has recently written about this and has said this, I learned that marriage is more than just a tradition or a religious or social construct monogamous, complementary, that is, male and female, conjugal marriage is a pearl of great price worth investing one's entire life in, a pursuit that surpasses all its imitators and imposters. He's speaking from experience. So, this comes clearly through this text here in Mark 10, the heterosexual nature of marriage, but let's consider one other thing, and that is that marriage is permanent in duration. Marriage is intended to be permanent in duration. So Jesus has been uh, quoting here from Genesis 1 and 2, as I said, but if you look at verse 9, um, there's, there's an additional statement. This is not actually in Genesis. So Jesus says this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, the intention of marriage is that it would not be dissolved, that it would be a permanent union between a man and a woman, that, that, that there would not be a time where the man says, I am leaving, or where the woman says, I am leaving, but that that marriage would last until they pass from this life to the next. That's the intent. And of course, we know that's not always the way it works, and that divorce is actually very common in our society, in our culture, even in the church. And I know that there are many people here in the room today who have been affected by divorce, perhaps more than more people have been than haven't been, probably, if we consider uh, the possibility that your parents were divorced. Maybe you grew up in a divorced home. Uh, maybe you have children and your children have gotten divorced. Perhaps you yourself are divorced, and perhaps you've been divorced even multiple times. Um, personally, I haven't been divorced, so I can't say I know exactly what it feels like, but I imagine it, it's very painful, that it's very lonely, it probably feels like a kind of a failure, and I know there are very, very complex reasons for divorce. We can have uh, physical and emotional abusive situations and mental illness that plays into the reasons for divorce. It's very complicated, very painful, just one of these effects of living in a dysfunctional, fallen world. But here in verses 10 through 12, Jesus speaks to this issue of divorce directly. And so he's left the Pharisees now. He's with his disciples in the house, a house. And so he begins to speak directly about this issue. And here's what he says in verse 11. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
So a man who decides to divorce his wife and gets remarried, according to Jesus, committing adultery. A woman divorces her husband, gets remarried, it's an act of adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, one thing not to miss here is that according to Jewish law, it would have been impossible for a, a woman, for, it would have been impossible for adultery to be committed against a woman. If a woman divorced her husband, that would be adultery or uh, a sin against the husband. But if the husband divorced the wife, it wasn't considered an offense against the woman. And so what Jesus is, is doing here is, is something quite radical. I mean, Jesus is elevating the status of women to something completely unheard of. I mean, it's quite a feminist kind of statement here to, to, to present the man and the woman to be this equal by saying that if a man commits adultery against, or if a man gets divorced and remarried, that that's an act of adultery against the woman. The woman is the victim in that sense. And so that was uncommon. Jesus is radically changing the nature of divorce and remarriage in this statement here in verse 11. But as we look at this passage, I know it's a difficult passage to hear if you've had experience with divorce. And uh, we spent a lot of time, I think, trying to say what it doesn't say. We'll get to that here in a second, but let me make sure we understand what it does say, and that is that Jesus doesn't like divorce. He's making a very strong point that you shouldn't do it. But there are exceptions. And so again, when we go back to this Scripture interpreting Scripture principle, we can look to other passages in Scripture and we can find that actually there are some exceptions, some areas where it would be acceptable to be divorced. So one exception is in the area of sexual immorality. So here's Matthew 19. Jesus says this. So this is the same event as what we just read in Mark. This is Matthew's account, but Matthew adds something that Mark didn't include. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So we have that additional language there. Now, why didn't Mark include that? Well, there's theories about that. I'm not going to get into it. We don't know. But what Matthew is recording would suggest that what Jesus is saying is that if there is an instance of sexual immorality and there is a divorce and there is a remarriage, that that would be an acceptable case where that can happen. Except for sexual immorality, that's the exception. If sexual immorality is present, then it is permissible for a divorce to happen and for the offended party to remarry. It doesn't mean it has to happen. It's not a command. It's not saying if there is sexual immorality, you must get divorced. It's a wonderful demonstration of the gospel when you have spouses willing to forgive each other in a case like this, and that has happened. But there is an exception. It is permissible. But the other example is from 1 Corinthians 7, 13 to 15, another exception to this teaching on divorce. Paul says this, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So it's not permissible to divorce a spouse just because the spouse isn't a Christian. 
Now, before you get married, single people, you need to be very careful that the person you marry is a Christian. That's the time to figure that out. In fact, the probably strongest piece of advice I could give to any of you who are not married and thinking about being married is to make sure you marry a Christian. Do not marry a non-Christian. But once you're married, if you find now that you're married to a non-Christian, what Paul is saying here is she should not divorce him. You don't divorce a person because you have a spiritual disagreement. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And so then Paul says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So uh, we call this the desertion exception. That is, if one of the parties in the marriage deserts the marriage, leaves the other person, then there is an, uh, an exception for divorce. But notice that Paul is referring to the unbelieving partner. So there's a specific mention that this is when an unbeliever leaves the marriage. And we could talk a lot about what qualifies as desertion, uh, leaving could maybe be understood in, in different ways, but certainly physically, physical absence, the, the spouse has gone, has left the home, has disappeared. What might happen, even if that were a Christian marriage, is that hopefully the church would get involved and that person who has deserted the marriage would be confronted, and if that person was really a Christian, we would expect the Holy Spirit to work a spirit of confession and repentance, and that person would then repent of his or her desertion and come back to the marriage. That's what we would expect to happen with a Christian marriage. But if that person is being confronted and that person refuses to repent and refuses to listen, we could say that person is now acting like an unbeliever, and we could perhaps even draw the conclusion that that person is an unbeliever, in which case this exception in 1 Corinthians 7 would apply. But you notice how it ends here. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Different ideas about what that means, but I think what Paul is saying here is you're not enslaved to your previous marriage. If you're deserted by your spouse, and it is um, a, uh, a biblical, defensible divorce that results, then that person is not enslaved to that marriage and is free to remarry. There's a lot to talk about here, friends. There are just an endless number of situations. This is so difficult. And, uh, you know, as a pastor, I think the elders would, would join me in just acknowledging that this is the, the hardest thing that, that we have to deal with when we have to wrestle with divorce and remarriage situations. But some of you might be thinking, well, I've been divorced, and I, I think maybe, maybe my divorce is wrong. I think maybe I got divorced for the wrong reasons. What do I do? Should I go back and be married to my former spouse? And the answer to that is no. If, if you're married again, if you're married again, you should stay in that marriage. Because to break up that marriage would be a sin, and it wouldn't be proper to sin even to try to do something that you think is right. You have new covenant obligations to fulfill. So I, I would not say that you should leave your spouse and be remarried again. Um, 
encouragement to those of you who have been divorced, look, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins, and that includes divorce. There is pardon. It's not an excuse to say, oh, good, now I can divorce my spouse and be forgiven. But as you look back and maybe carry some guilt, you can unleash that guilt at the cross of Jesus and be pardoned and be forgiven. So what should we do going forward as we just kind of bring this to a close? Uh, Perhaps it feels like there's some things untouched here, but again, it's a big topic. But let me just make a few suggestions and we'll be done. Um, Let let me just say, you know, there's just, for married couples, there's probably nothing, you know, it's kind of an overstatement maybe, but there are a few things you can do that are as important as, as working on your marriage and making sure that it's good. And it's not just about your own personal fulfillment and happiness. And that's a big part of, I think, the reason why this passage is important, because so many people get divorced, because, well, we've, we've grown apart. I'm just not happy anymore. You know, we look at things so differently. We used to be, I've fallen out of love. You know, these are not sufficient reasons for divorce. At the very least, we can say that. So work on your marriage. We, we uh, have had marriage enrichment groups here at New Life before, and uh, during COVID, we um, have discontinued those, but we are kind of thinking about how to resume those enrichment groups, both for marriage and parenting. And uh, so just uh, hang tight, and uh, hopefully we'll have some groups uh, for you before too long. Uh, let me say also that, you know, if you feel like your marriage is in trouble, seek help sooner rather than later. Don't wait until you've both decided to end it to come looking for help. Go earlier rather than later. And if it turns out you didn't really need it, that's okay. Your marriage will probably be better as a result of that conversation anyway. I want to say also that as a church, friends, that we need to show love and care to the divorced and the widowed and the single people among us. Because they might not have a family like The married people have a family. This is their family. Let's be their family. Watch for those people in our community. Reach out to them. Care for them. Bring them to your home. Love them. Last thing I'll just say is in all of this, let's just remember the gospel, which we're going to hear about more as Brian leads us in the taking of the bread and the cup. But... um, just very interesting to notice the marital connections to the gospel. Do you remember the call to worship at the start of the service? It says that your maker is your husband. God, God is, our, is our husband. Have you ever thought of it that way? And because of the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're looking forward to when he comes again, scriptures say that we as his people are called his bride. We are his bride. God is our husband. And here's one thing we know. God will never, ever divorce his people. And that's one loving relationship we know that will have no end. And so let that bring us encouragement to support a strong marriage culture in our church and in our country. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that um, whatever might have been said here that was um, misleading or not helpful would fall away, and only what was said that was truthful and based on your word uh, would remain in the hearts and minds 
of these people. Father, draw close to those who are single, widowed, divorced. Give them comfort. Give them strength. Give them peace. Assure them of your love for them. And for those of us who are married, help us, Lord, to love each other well um, for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.